This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio Um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences, the page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. I, I didn't know if we were going to get. And all... just barely. I, I mean, mean it really. Has, it has been, right. A we're morning. on the knife's edge. It a is morning. One of those mornings. A My morning God. of two self obsessed flighty artists trying to deal with physical reality and failing at every turn. My hot water in my building was not working. And <sighs> just there was a critical update on our uh, Apple devices. And mm-hmm. Christopher and I are really, I mean, we'll see if we are able to finish out the podcast, but we're pretty emotionally, we may just seek um, some kind of counseling, (laughs) crisis counselors are standing by. The number of people, uh, party people on our Facebook page who talk about listening to our show on Sunday mornings as if it centers them. And I'm like, how do we center you? We I are fucking it's mess. it's that comparison thing. Like, <laughs> oh, well, at least my life isn't as crazy as those two. <laughs> Jesus, they sound like a wreck. They, and we are. You're right. We are. We it's, are. There's no special effects. We really are as big a wreck as we sound like. We really are. And it was just, I mean, this morning, I didn't know. I just finally said, Brandon, start recording. He's like, I've been recording for 10 minutes. Just talk. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, I have just plans. Start cutting it in 15 minutes <laughs> segments and airing it. Just whatever you talk about. Um, so it technically today is a true crime TV club, and it's the first of a pairing. Oh, good. I yeah. have no idea what we're doing today. I'm completely, <laughs> I'm still dealing with the crisis from earlier. Like, I had to take... Do you want to talk about it I had it to first? take a whore bath this morning. I had to... Um, nothing against sex workers. No. It is a we, perfectly legitimate we love employment sex choice, and yes. it should not be illegal. It should be a choice, because then traffickers wouldn't have anybody to right. traffic in because it would be a job and we could actually protect young people regulated. who shouldn't be doing it in the first place if it was regulated. Absolutely. Anyway, so soapbox <laughs> is folded back up and so I took a whore bath. <laughs> 
which means I boiled some water and put it in a pitcher and took it in the shower with me and did my best. I tried turning the shower on. Wow, I'm just I, I just don't think I can do a cold shower. That's just not going to happen. What's weird about this? Let me just interject: is that you love being cold. You you want the air conditioning on full blast. You want to move to Vancouver in the dead of winter. Like you love the cold, but not cold shower water. No. Like, I am not a polar bear. I'm not one of those people who's going to go dive into ice-cold water. That is just not— Well, you don't even like to go outside. Of course not. Well, they could put—they could fill a, a hot tub with <laughs> ice cubes and why It's just not happening. They don't it's need to because it's not happening. We don't need to work that out. Yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah, I just really—now I brush my teeth with hot water. I literally don't use cold water for Anything You're except to get eccentric. soap suds to go away. I You're very eccentric. Very eccentric. You well, brush think, your teeth with hot water. Yes. I, how have I gone 15 some odd years, 20 some odd years without knowing this about you? I don't know. I what mean, do you, like you really don't monitor my teeth brushing much. So That's true. That's that's probably, true. That could probably be part of it. Yeah, I even put hot water in the um, water pick. Okay, that makes more sense to me. Like, I don't know, because it's, I don't know. You want to keep it clean, and it's an appliance, and I whatever. I don't know, but, but like, okay. I, I am all about, yeah. No, I do not use cold water much, so, yeah, so it is really a change. It was a challenge. So that just sort of rattles you, and, you know, like, I didn't do, the hair is just pulled back in a, but I usually do that so it doesn't get tangled in the headphones anyway. You look like so. a chef today. You just look like like you're ready for work, not like you've been working. I look working. like Chef Batali. I'm yes. fat and my hair's pulled back. <laughs> I got sucked into that one. No, I did not call you fat. No, that's not true. Well, it is true, but he didn't call me that. Um, yeah, I'm still recovering from the pandemic, COVID, and... Uh, uh, we have not talked about it on the air yet. We both got COVID. Oh, yeah. yeah. We yeah. both got COVID. We went to um, Book Bonanza and had a great <laughs> visit with three readers and came home with, with lots of new readers and COVID. COVID, yes. yeah. It was um it was really a drag. I actually think that we got it on the plane going to book Bonanza. Right. Um we got on a plane, we did this amazing thing where we were whisked out across the mm-hmm. got to drive across the uh <laughs> the tarmac and the um, avoid landing planes. Right. And, uh, and come in the side door. Of the plane itself. But the plane was just sitting there and the air conditioner wasn't on. So we were all breathing each other's breath. And I think, I think that's where we got it. I don't actually think we got it at Book Bonanza. In fact, Mm -hmm. I think Christopher got it because he was sitting on the aisle and then he gave it to me. I Um, think that sounds like a very likely story. Because his symptoms were always one day ahead of me. I was. I was one day ahead of you. Um, the whole time through. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, but let's say this. I mean, we were, we're both triple vaccinated, and but my experience, and I think it was similar quadruple. to you, Quadruple vaccinated. My experience, and I think it was similar to your experience, was um, w- while we were not critically ill and we didn't have to go to the hospital, we had more symptoms than somebody who got early Omicron did. Because I was at a dinner later with people who all had Omicron in the beginning, and they were like, oh, my God, I barely knew I had it. And I was like, boy, did I know I I had fever, I had congestion, I was coughing. But again, I wasn't turning blue, I wasn't having difficulty breathing, and I don't think you were either. It was just really unpleasant. It was like a bad flu. No, yeah, it was—I didn't have fever, really. I had— no, I didn't really have fever. Like, it was a little bit. Um, but, yeah, sore throat mm-hmm. and uh, cough. You had a bad sore throat. I, I did not. a really bad sore throat yeah. and a cough. And that was kind of it. So it was a drag, but I have been sicker than that. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even take the Paxlovid. No. 
we just um, went through the the regular symptoms. And I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but that's what we did. The doctor was like, yeah, because you remember even the president had that issue of the bounce back. He, yes, the, and it, you really need to be high risk. Of, you really need to have some comorbidities to qualify for Paxlovid is what they're telling people. It's for people who could get critically ill. And well— as eccentric as you are, you're not there yet. I know you want to be there, Eric Shockland, but no, you're not there yet. No, you're I don't healthy. really, like, I don't feel that way at all. But, you know, I'm old and I have a heart condition, so that's yeah. kind of, but. Right. But we recovered and. But um, we ate a lot of noodle soup and crackers and uh, grilled cheese sandwiches in the meantime. And so, yeah, there's that. And then there was being at the conference and then there was yeah. being in pandemic. And then I have. Since I had my appendicitis last year, I put on a bunch of weight. So, yeah, I'm kind of at a place where I could stand to mm. – I could miss a few meals and it would not be a tragedy. Okay. Well, we're not going to do a starvation thing. Nobody's no, we're doing not doing that. That's I not don't a good diet Because that, that doesn't work. But no. you know what I mean. It's not healthy. But, yeah, I, I think that um, – So it's very Mario Batali around here today. It is. It's very – the thing my that I love – The thing that I love – Without the molestation. Right. <laughs> The thing that I love, I'm going to try to get this in before we do our True Crime TV Club. Most people, some people call it a French bath, which is insulting, vaguely insulting to the French. There was a politician's wife who did that in France. They appeared at something and she said, well, I, I, my schedule is so tight I only had time for a French bath, meaning she washed her armpits in the sink. Wow. And the French were not happy about that. But it's that you boil but the water. But when are the French really that happy? But it's that you We love them, but not because they're a happy But it's people. that you boil the water. That's the thing. Most people just do it over the sink. Like, you actually boil water and take it into the shower. Oh, I yeah. think that's lovely. Like, if I had if I had, had a basin, it would yep. have been a really sort of ideal kind of situation. I guess I could have pulled the— Also, tip to um, people who are without hot water trying my, um, mm -hmm. my whore bath technique— uh, your pitcher may not be crazy about boiling hot water. <laughs> I had to order a new pitcher. It didn't explode, but it, it got a weird, frightening crack in it. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's it for that pitcher. It changed color in the yeah. shower. It was not a happy pitcher. I love that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't think nihilism or um, existentialism would be, or philosophy would mm -hmm. be what it is without with a happy French people. I, no, I just, no, no. So waiting for them to be thrilled about stuff, I think, might no. be. A, might be a fruitless and, and pointless cause because we love their morose romanticism. Absolutely. All right, that's enough. That's enough tomfoolery. That's enough chit chat. We got to get down to the. Crime. I'm sorry. No, it's all tomfoolery all it's the time. We I may know. just start. We're going to have tomfoolery about. That's a why crime. I always say. What crime that. are we talking about today? What well, let me tell here? you, Eric Shaw Quinn. Let me remind you, since you're so scattershot this morning. I am. This is the first in a pairing. We're going to do a true crime TV club about this case today. And then next episode, we will be doing a true crime movie time of a limited British series based on this case. Uh, this is very well known to a lot of our listeners, but we've never discussed it before. It's the case of Stephen Port. Oh, right. Otherwise known as the Grinder Killer. So what we're talking about today is a documentary that here in the U.S. is available on YouTube for free called How the Police Missed the Grinder Killer. But it's a BBC show, yes. so it isn't like... You know, some guy talking about it um, in his living room. It's actually a produced television show, which I guess maybe is more of the case with YouTube than I realize. Well, and that's the case. So let's talk about that for our international listeners because we're going to encounter this next week. Things have different names in different markets, and things are available to stream in Australia and the U.K. or Commonwealth countries, and they're not available to stream here, and we have to find them on YouTube. So this may actually have a different title for people. Next week... The Barking Murders, which is what it's called on our subscription service, is actually called 
for lives in oh, other markets. Because I could not find it on IMDb. That's what it's called on IMDb, for lives. Okay, so. The number four? No, spelled out, F-O-U-R. But not yeah. F-O-R. It's F-O-U-R. No, F-O-U-R. So, okay, that's all the housekeeping notes. Oh, oh, no, it's not all the housekeeping notes. I forgot my favorite one, which I say every week what? that we do this. True Crime TV Club does not require you nor expect you to watch the documentary in question because we are going to serve it up for you in such steaming detail that you will feel like you watched it without exerting the effort, which is, I think we've come to call it the Cindy Conforti rule, which is she hates watching these documentaries, but for some reason enjoys listening to us talk about them. So, okay. Because of all of our tomfoolery. Because of all of our tomfoolery. That's what I suspect. Absolutely. All right. And I guess the ship has already sailed on people seeing your billboard across from Penn Station. I, I feel like they're sick of hearing me talk about well, it. Well, it probably was like yesterday or day before. They can't go into the city and see it. But maybe if you're coming out of Penn Station, look over I at the Amazon I think it's going to be sign. up there for a while. It's a digital billboard. So it alternates. So it's every five to eight minutes it's there for five seconds. So if you want to go and take a picture in front of it, that's what you need to know. Uh, I was on the treadmill at um, uh, Sequinox mm -hmm. for, uh, to see my name go by on the ticker when they used to have a ticker oh, on CNN. That was fun. When you were involved in that bank robbery? Um, yeah, when Pam and I knocked over that bank <laughs> and made everybody buy that horrible book that we read. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> wow, Christopher. Well, that's an addition to the show that I'm surprised hasn't been made long before now. <laughs> being friends with Christopher is like being friends with Barney on <laughs> The Simpsons. Not, like the sometimes big, it's, not the big purple dinosaur, no, but the burping drunk. The yes, burping thank drunk you. at the bar who, like, whose yeah. lips actually blow <laughs> in the breeze. <laughs> of the yeah, Christopher is a major. He loves carbonated water, and then he is a major belcher. And uh, I'm really surprised that in all these years, I think that's the first time we've actually captured one. Here's what I found out. Do you want to know what I found out? We just recorded in this here studio the audiobook for Sapphire Spring, which is my second Sapphire Cove novel. And the director said, after a day of recording, maybe this happened to you when you did Blood Communion for Mom, you have you have ingested so or you have taken in so much air that you just start to burp at the end of the day. And in the recording, they say, just let it fly. We'll cut it out, but because if you fight it, it will be worse. So for me, already being burping inclined, it got a little it got a little gassy in here around 3 p.m. every day. It Christopher was, used that as his excuse to belch like Barney on The Simpsons. Like, I talk more than anybody I've ever met in my entire life, and I don't burp hardly ever. So. You have a very interesting stomach. You have a stomach. Like, the fact that you don't well, burp, period. We're using the interesting word in a um, yeah. in a sort of pejorative sense. It's mm -hmm. not really actually interesting. It's just sort of as in not typical. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's not really anything uh, all that usual about me. No, there isn't. Not a very usual person. Very not usual. Eric Shawquin. All right, are we going to are we gonna do True Crime TV Club or not, or do we have more eccentricities to talk about? I think we should just dive right in. Eric! Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. 
Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing uh, sets the I, scene. I know what I'm gonna set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? <laughs> Okay, so the documentary that we are serving up today as part of True Crime TV Club is called How the Police Missed the Grinder Killer. It's available on YouTube here in the United States. It is a British documentary, so if you're in the UK or the Commonwealth, you maybe can find it somewhere else. Um, as you were saying before we came back, this is very to the point. There's no mystery. There's no setup. They tell you who the killer is from, from the gate. It is very much because ultimately... And you'll see as this unfolds, this doesn't really turn out to be as horrific as this is and as terrible as this crime was and as brutal as it was to these young men and to their families. That's not really the story here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is very much – it reminded me of the, the story of the, the killings in, in Sydney, the, the Manly Beach killings um, yes. that we did a few episodes ago. Deep Water, I think, is the name of the, one of the specials on it we covered. Yes. Yeah, it's just it, – it, it ultimately became a story about the investigation and the nature, the way the investigation went, or at least that's how it played for me. Anyway, we'll get into it, but you'll, I think you'll see what I mean as we go along. So a 911 call – well, excuse me, I shouldn't have written that because it's not 911. It's 999. 999. Emergency services, I believe, is what they call it in the UK. It comes in, it summons the cops to an address, 47 Cook Street, which is a block of flats in East London. The caller is claiming there's a collapsed young man outside the address. The date is the 19th of June, 2014. And the call is from a man named Stephen Bort. 
And again, they tell us right up front that Port has date-raped and murdered this man and dumped him outside of his own door, I believe yeah. it was, and is lying to the police saying that he came home from work and just found this man collapsed on the, on the cobblestones outside. The man is Anthony Walgate. Cobblestones? I just threw that detail yeah, in. Yeah, this was like a council flat. Like, <laughs> there weren't cobblestones within uh, 100 yards of this place. Although there was the churchyard, so there might have been some over there. But, right, we're going to get to some But, but not, a, yeah. not outside his apartment. Uh, p- the police constable who arrives notes that there is suspicious bruising and blood on the torso of the young man. His name is Anthony. Is that right? There's some... Di- the- we're going to get into that later in our coverage of this, but the pronunciation Anthony. of this man's name became Anthony. Anthony. Yeah, they were calling him Andy, I think, or Anthony. They kept calling him Anthony. Did he? Yeah. yeah. It, whatever. It pissed the mom off. So, um, after questioning Stephen Port at the time, the cops let him go, accepting fully this claim that he just found this body after returning from work at the late shift. We meet Anthony's mom, Sarah. She is what I would call a firecracker. She adored her son. I am telling you, she loved that kid. She loved every sequin and every feather and every. She yes. had a. Uh, she made a, a scrapbook of him called "All About Me." Yeah, and he wanted to be in fashion, and he was, I think, studying. He was in yeah. school to be a fashion designer. Yeah, yes. no, that he was very much. It was all about that for him, and. He was very he was very true to himself and she was very supportive of who he was. He was a very, very, very out uh, gay young man who was very um, who was all about fashion and being who exactly Ooh, who he was. Proud yes. indeed. So she's on holiday in Turkey when she gets the news. She has her phone turned off and when she turns it back on, she's just deluged with text. Uh, she finally speaks to one of her relatives. I think she speaks to her other son. And he gives her the news. She contacts the police and is given absolutely no information about the death of her son. Um, she points I out— I mean, like, nothing. Nothing. Like, even the stuff that would seem obvious and that she, they can answer any of her questions, they've, he's just been found dead. She points out that he hasn't been beaten up or stabbed based on what she's been told, and they confirm that, and they don't seem to think that that's suspicious. Like, why would he just be dead outside of this building with no, with only this sort of vague bruising? And I want to pause for a second here to say that my favorite part, this is true again, it will be true again in next week's um, True Crime Movie Time, and it's certainly true here. The most British part of this entire um, two-part special pairing, mm-hmm. true crime uh, extravaganza, the most British part of the whole thing is every single solitary morning traumatized relative's first reaction to hearing about the loss of their loved one is barking. What was he doing in barking? <laughs> like, not that he's dead, but that he was in barking. That's the thing right. that really trips people out. Right. I heard that and I thought, oh, God, I love these people. These are my people. That's barking. Really, really true. What was he doing in barking? Every yes. person says it. Right. Um, so here's the thing, and this is going to become a trend with the cops. She says, his phone is missing. Why don't you track his phone? And they say, it's too expensive. And we're going to hear that a lot. Every time the family members ask for some basic thing, something that we would take for granted. And the death isn't suspicious, so right. there's no reason to do a, bunch, a big investigation because this is, yeah. So, okay. A week after Anthony's friend's uh, death, excuse me, reading my notes too quickly there, 
a week after his death, his friends reveal that he had hooked up with a gentleman named Stephen Port. Remember him from the very beginning? But he was using a fake name, wasn't he? On an escort website. So I think they were both using fake names. Wasn't that it? Yeah. But yeah, so it wasn't Stephen Port. But they had his picture and they had, yeah, it was really, they had all the information that the police needed to really zero back in on the guy who had called this crime in to begin with and said he just discovered him on the front porch and had no idea who he was when in fact um, they had to, you know, they already knew that that was who he was going to meet. Exactly. So Port is arrested for lying to the cops about not knowing Anthony and he admits he hired him as an escort but his story now becomes Anthony died of a self-inflicted overdose did Port Overdurs. 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 I'm sorry, my Mr. Ed was coming out. My inner Mr. Ed. Horror. And so the story now is he let the guy sleep off his drug binge in his bed, went to work, and then came home and discovered him dead and dragged him outside and called the police. Because he didn't want to be blamed for it. And the police believe this story. Which is like, uh, And the police are like, oh, well, all right, that makes sense. He's released on bail. During this time, they take his DNA, the special notes. Um, During this time, Sarah also has her son's computer and offers to give it to the police and says, you can compare it to Port's computer, which they apparently had or had the ability to get as a result of his arrest. No, they had both. The, The police actually came and took it. So they refuse, again, because they say it's too expensive. And it's not a suspicious death. There was somebody lying about dragging a dead body outside of their house and leaning it up against the wall and phoning it in and saying he found it there. But there's still nothing suspicious to the Dagenham Barking Police Force that are allegedly investigating this crime. And again, because there's no attempted suspense (laughs) in this special, not faulting them for that, because it's about, as you said, it's 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 an analysis of something different. That's the title of it, is how they missed it. it. If they had gone on Port's computer (laughs) at the time, they would have found searches for date rape drugs, videos of unconscious boys being raped. These were literally the the search terms he was using. Uh, they would have found actual videos of unconscious boys being raped. Some of them by Stephen Port, yeah. who videotaped himself raping unconscious boys. And they would have then discovered that the day after conducting these internet searches is when he hired Anthony. But they don't. They don't. They don't learn any of that. Because and they don't apparently, do, it's too expensive. There is an enormous amount of drug, drugs and drug paraphernalia in Stephen Port's house, and I have to say. I don't know about you, but I don't remember them ever mentioning finding it. We find it right because we find out later from a neighbor that they saw it, and and you're right, the cops don't say anything about it. The guy was hor- The neighbor was so horrified that he never came. They were sort of friends, and he never came back for a visit, right? Because he was so horrified by how massive this collection of sachets of white powder mm-hmm. and uh, little brown bottles that he found in this huge Tupperware container, right? In the middle of the room, and it was like, yeah, no, they didn't find that. But they did take his computer. They just didn't look at it at all. So now we get a little bit of Port's biography. He was born in 1975 in the south end of London. His family moves to Dagenham in East London. He's bullied at school. He was a loner who went on to become a chef. And in 2005, Ryan Edwards, his neighbor, got to know him. And Ryan is interviewed. And the neighbor says that it was just one young boy after another into his home. And this is when, if you are a gay member of the audience, as we are, you get to hear a scientific analysis of the word twink, which, which is, is really amusing. amusing. Yeah. Um, but They also do it in court. But he also adds, the neighbor does, that 
these are vulnerable young men that they don't seem to be uh, have regular homes that they're maybe well, runaways. Part of the vulnerability is that they're youth. Yeah. Right. Like part of what he's taking advantage of, part of what he seemed to be attracted to with younger people was his ability to dominate them. Right. Because they were younger. And as Ryan meets some of these young men and talks to them alone, uh, they relate that Port mistreats them, that he has a violent, abusive character. And one boy even claims that Port shoved him into a television and shows sort of injuries. Ryan is the neighbor. Ryan is the neighbor. Did we say that before? Yes. Yes. Okay. I just, Ryan Edwards is his name. Um, so summer of 2014, two months after killing his first victim, which is Anthony, Port strikes again. And this time the victim is a 22-year-old Slovakian man named Gabriel Kavari, who uh, was looking for a room to rent and was previously staying with an older gay man who he met on some sort of dating app, but decided not to date and apparently wasn't having a sexual relationship with. His name is John Papper, or John Paper. Yeah, they became friends, and he rented right. to him, and he said he had a spare room that he was intending to use for to help refugees, so he thought it was a perfect opportunity to right. help somebody because they didn't click. Yeah. Um, so he lets Gabriel stay, stay in the spare room, and he stays there for six weeks, I think, is the timeline. And then he says, I got another I got another place to stay. But what he really means is I've been hired as an escort by this guy I've met online, which is Stephen Port. I don't know that. I did not get that from that. I think that he they I think that what happened with Gabriel, my take on it was mm -hmm. that Gabriel was using gay hookup apps to meet people in the hopes of facilitating more permanent accommodations yeah. right. because he didn't have, he had really come here by flying by the seat of his pants. He really, or come there, right? Um, flying by the seat of his pants. So he didn't really have a lot of funds or wherewithal. So he arranged to, um, to rent the guy's sofa. He was paying Stephen Port to stay at his house. Yeah, you're right. I got it wrong because what happens later I reversed it in my head, is that when Ryan, the neighbor, asked Port, how, is things go how are things going with that young man, Gabriel? He seems very nice. Port responds by text, oh, he's taking very good care of him. Or me, he, 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 or something like that. So Port implies this sexual relationship or this exchange of whatever for whatever that maybe was not factual. But maybe not there, or maybe there was some sex involved, but it wasn't the primary. He was actually renting the sofa. Yeah. Within days of his arrival, Ryan, the neighbor, notices that Gabriel has vanished. He asks Port, what's up? Port claims ignorance and says he might have left to stay with some army guy that he was chatting with online and talking about. Then out of nowhere, he sends Ryan, this is Port now that I'm describing, a long text saying, I have some very bad news about Gabriel. He went back home, but when he was there, he picked up a mysterious illness and he died. And whatever you do, don't mention this on Facebook to his friends and family because they're very upset. And, of course, what we discover is that Port has killed Gabriel with GHB. He's moved his body, without being spotted, a few hundred meters away to a nearby churchyard. To, yeah, to a graveyard. Yeah. So this is the first of several bodies that are going to show up in this churchyard. And leans him up against the wall. And then the next day, this poor woman who is out walking her dog <laughs> this poor discovers woman. this body leaned up against the wall in the, in the woods. So she calls the police. Right. And, and the you know and they do you know uh, fuck all 
And but and she knows, and her infinite wisdom is just a woman walking her dog. You know, this is weird. There's something wrong with this. The guy has been positioned. He's sitting up. This none of this makes sense. But the police are like, oh, it's just an overdose. Just another overdose. Yeah. Like it happens in the graveyard all the time, or whatever. Yeah, it was really. They really did like for Gabriel. They really did nothing. And so. Um, the police find John Pape, the old friend of Gabriel, the one he was staying with initially, and they show up on his door and they say, we're so sorry, your friend is dead. Bye. And John's like, what? This is, doesn't make any sense. I don't have any experience of Gabriel as a drug addict or a drug user. What's going on? And so John is really the first one to go on the Internet, the first of many that we will meet, and Google unexplained deaths in barking. And he immediately hits on Anthony's death. Who was left sitting up right? leaning against a wall. So Just a few hundred feet from where Gabriel was left. And then, as if that's not enough, while all this is going down, while the police are doing nothing, while John is the only one really looking into the strangeness of all of this, Daniel Whitworth, a 21-year-old, is contacted by Stephen Port on an app called Fit Lads. Was this an escort? This was not an escort. This was site. a gay dating. This was gay dating. Um Port suggests they meet for a drink before dinner, just so you can get to know me a bit, so you know I'm not some psycho. Red flag. Um, and a few days later, Barbara goes, or maybe I think a that day later. That poor woman goes out to walk her dog same again. Woman. And there is another dead body leaning up against the wall in the, the churchyard where she walks her dog. And she is, I have to say, she was interviewed and was, I think, pretty reasonable about it, all yeah. things considered. I would have been berserk I would have assumed it was about me but that's because everybody has to drink because it's about me but but like yeah who finds two dead bodies in this in your lifetime who comes who isn't in a working in a in war zone same, or in law enforcement in the same location in yeah. the same graveyard and she's reported both to the police and it's like are you guys doing anything about this like yeah. is there going to be another one tomorrow like what's going on yeah. and the police were like there's nothing suspicious still the police still are saying that there is nothing suspicious about these deaths. There's a new wrinkle here, and this is where things get really diabolical. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors, and you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> So 21-year-old uh, Daniel Whitworth's body has been found in the exact same space, uh, place in the Barking Cemetery as uh, Gabriel's. By the exact same dog walker. By the poor, ex- poor, poor Barbara woman. Denham. I just, my heart breaks. But this time, there is a suicide note, a fake suicide note on Daniel's body, linking him to Gabriel's death, claiming he was so upset over causing Gabriel's overdose that he has taken his own life. In a plastic sleeve, because that's what suicide people do. They're really concerned about the condition of the suicide. So they write the note and handwrite the note and then put it in a plastic sleeve so that 
they're sure that the police can read it. So Dan, uh, Daniel's stepmother, Manny, is very much a mom. She's, she loves his dad and also loves him, and she is— She, I loved her. I wanted to meet her. Yeah, she is not having yeah. this story. I kind of wanted to meet all of these people. They were yeah. such a great family. They were the, the family the, that yeah, gay, gay people want to have. Everybody's family Absolutely. was— and that's why this went the way that it went, because if there, if any of these parents had not given a shit about their kids, they would have just accepted or ignored the police's story at face well, value. I mean, the first, the what was the first mom's name? Susan. Uh, no, Sarah. 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 Um, yeah, Sarah was ballistic, and they wouldn't listen to her. They just ignored her. But And I should also say Gabriel was apparently, I think, alienated from his family in Slovakia, but he had John, who was like a surrogate father figure in, yeah. in London, and so they, they all had somebody who was advocating for them. There were people who cared about Gabriel. His yeah. uh, ex-boyfriend stayed in touch as right, as right along as this developed. Anyway. So the police um, share a, just a, the signature portion of the suicide note by email with Manny and, and Daniel's father, and they say, we're not really sure that's his handwriting and and they point out something which was like as a writer of crime stories you're like wow this is really true they're like we didn't have much encounters with his handwriting anymore everything these days is text and email right and we couldn't have told you and so they don't make a positive identification they say they can't identify and that will be important later when later they're shown the note as the stepmom points out it refers to his family in a general way, it doesn't in any way address any of them personally. It talks about as though he's talking. She was what she said was, "Who is this letter to?" It wasn't to us. It was not to his family or right. the people who cared about him. It was written to the police. The police, because it includes another line in which it, which I is, just... "Don't blame the guy I was with last night." <laughs> that was just like, about sex. Wow! Wow! Because Stephen Port wrote this letter, which anybody with a brain would have been. Anyway, okay. But the other thing, and I, I think, is it in the suicide note? The other thing that, that he says is that he is responsible for Daniel's suicide note. says that he was responsible for Gabriel's death. Oh, absolutely. Death, That's the whole point of that the note. He, yeah. That he had overdosed him and that he felt so guilty about it that that's why he was killing himself. And in the same place that Gabriel died. So not only do you have a thrill killer here, right? You have a thrill killer who is torturing the families, you know, and and there's going to be, when we talk about it next week, there's a detail in the barking murders, which, if it's true, is not covered in this documentary, which is even, goes, I think, beyond this. Even darker. Um, so we'll talk about that in our next episode. But... Um, Port is now using a fake Facebook profile to pose as a former gay porn star from California who's now living in Dagingham. Lucky. Uh, what was his name? Did they give his Lucky name? Lucky something. I can't remember. Um, he's online, and what he's doing is a misinformation campaign. He's basically spreading lies about Gabriel and saying that he and Daniel knew each other and they attended chemsex orgies together. Um, which apparently have a name in Britain, which again is in the in the movie we're going to talk or the series we're going to talk about next week, which I had never heard before. Frat parties, yeah. Like, okay. okay, I guess fraternities are you know what we just fantasize about them in porn videos here. Yeah, like, I don't know what fraternities are like in England. I, I wow, don't know. Jesus. Um, so uh, during these posts, uh, within these posts, I should say, he's describing these parties in detail, and he's saying older men are giving younger men drugs and and raping them while they're asleep, and blah blah blah. And it's like it's his own sort of fevered fantasy version of his own crimes, kind of writ large. But it's also like some weird 
public cover story that right. he's putting out there to account for these murders that he's committed himself with his picture. And they include his picture. Yeah. And so John takes all of this to the police. John um, Paper, who who was Gabriel's uh, housemate for right. a while. And they won't even engage with him because he's not next of kin. And it's like his next of kin is in Slovakia. And, you know, like, like I'm actually a concerned citizen bringing you evidence in this crime. And like this mm-hmm. isn't about I'm not asking you for personal details. I'm giving you details. So he contacts an LGBT. So the police won't look. They won't look. And he contacts an LGBT news site, I think called Pink News, which I had heard of, which is, I think, European based. And he also they contact an activist group that I had never heard of called Gallup which apparently has close contacts with the police, and yeah. they get nowhere. These The group gets nowhere with the cops. Because the cops keep saying there is nothing suspicious about these deaths. So on the 23rd of June— Which two- just—how much—what would constitute a suspicious death right. in dagging and embarking? So, but they do have an inquest um, into Daniel Whitworth's death on June 23rd, 2015. The Whitworth family, they're summoned to this inquest— and they sit there and they listen to the cops basically just lie and say that the family positively identified the handwriting in the suicide notice Daniels. And they're like, no, we didn't. We, we told we you we not. couldn't. Um, they learned for the first time that Daniel was wrapped in a blue bed sheet. And the detective in charge reveals that no DNA testing was done on the bed sheet. They learned that there was bruising on Daniel's chest as well as his armpits, suggesting that he had been moved. The coroner, uh, who is in charge of the inquest, which is like, does that happen here or is this a British thing? Do you no, know the answer I think to this? There in, I think there are coroner's inquests here, too, okay. to determine whether or not an investigation should be okay. carried out or I, something like that. I think, I think there is some version of that here. My understanding of this issue, and this might have changed, is that there is not a federal standard of qualifications for coroners. There is not. And mm-hmm. I think yeah. that locally there's probably very different procedures for how they go about it. Right. But I think in general there is some does this did this person die of a heart attack or was there a knife in his back? You know right. what I mean? Like I think there is some medical examiner who says, yes, this should be investigated as a crime or no, there's no crime here. I yeah. think there is I think that does happen kind of as a a part of the pre- but you know not a policeman so I don't right. know we should ask a policeman. The coroner renders an open verdict in Daniel's death. He says the coroner says I can't say if this was I can't say what it is. It's open, but as a result of that, the cops will not reopen the case, which infuriates the family, understandably. Yeah. Uh, this same year, Port is convicted of perverting the course of justice in Anthony's death. That's the first death we talked about that he clearly lied about and admitted to lying right. about. Right. He's released two months early from a sentence of four months. And on the 13th of September, 2015... Almost as soon as he gets out of prison. He is back at it. He is exchanging messages with a 25-year-old young man named Jack Taylor. Um, uh, Jack's family, he's close with his sisters. He's close with his whole family. And uh, they're not aware that he is sexually experimenting online with men. And that's how he meets or comes into contact with Stephen. He goes out on a Saturday evening, presumably to hang out with friends of his, but he doesn't come home on Sunday night, which is very odd. Uh, Monday morning, the mother is getting freaked out. Uh, She calls Donna, Jack's sister. Uh, They are on the phone when the cops pull up to give the death notification. Donna describes hearing her mother scream when she hears the news, which is just devastating. Um, Oh, just can't imagine. The circumstances are the same as the other deaths. He's in the same Practically the same place in the cemetery. He's leaning on the other side of the same wall. 
But this time there's a syringe in his pocket and a needle mark in his arm. In the wrong arm. In the wrong arm. That was I was waiting for you because yeah, you're it was better supposed right to be. Yeah, it was. It was he was he was right-handed and it was the injection mark was in his right arm. Yeah. Which how would you inject yourself in the arm with your dominant hand? That's ridiculous. And, and they don't think this is a suspicious death. Either. They don't. They, they and so two weeks after the death, Donna. Jack's sister contacts the police and discovers nothing has been done for 11 days. They're treating it as an overdose. So that she and her other sister, Jen, become a force had to it. be reckoned with. Yes, they are not taking they no for an answer. The sisters that every queer man wishes he had. They go to Barkingham, yeah. Dagingham, Dagenham Barking. And they there is a sense... I'm gonna, we can talk about that next week, but but there's a sense that they are taken a bit more seriously because they come from a higher class of people. I, that was my reaction. That they're afraid they of that. They they're were, rich girls. They were. Yeah. That was. I don't know that they were rich, but they were definitely more upper class than than the um, the, the previous um, groups. I think, although Daniel didn't seem to be any slow leak. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and they are family, so they have they are next of kin, and they are not taking no for an answer. They're also younger and able to they get in and get on the internet and start investigating this crime. They become right. amateur sleuths. Um, they and and they don't let up on the cops, and so the cops are having meetings with them, and they, the cops say, "Okay, we've got CCTV footage of Jack meeting with a man." And then the footage shows the two of them parting, and Jack continues on alone, which makes no sense. So the story that they're offering is he was with this man, he left the man, and then went and committed suicide. And so they suicide. say, show us the footage. So they, but the, to their credit, the cops went off and re-examined the footage, and the, and the way I understood it is the cops come back to the sisters and say, okay, we were wrong. Well, the He's sisters the say, they, they show the sisters the footage. The sisters say, show us. Yeah. So they see her meet Stephen. Mm -hmm. They see him meet Stephen. They see Jack meet Stephen. Um, they see them walking along, and then they show them the other guy, and they go, that's not our brother. That's a different oh, guy. Did they? Yeah. they said, you should look. Like, what if he didn't, what if he went the other way? No, it's not possible the other way. Yeah. What if he went the other way? And so the sergeant who's involved actually looks, mm -hmm. and there they are. Yeah. They are never separated, and the other guy was a different guy. Because they weren't fucking paying attention, because they believed what they believed, and they didn't think the footage needed to be examined with a fine-tooth comb or a magnifying glass. I mean, it's just, it's the same story across four different murders. It's just, it's, it's, it's horrible. Um, but now they've seen that it's with Stephen, and they say, well, we'll start looking for the other guy. Because the thing that the sisters said that they could not believe about the police was that the police could not be less interested about finding the guy mm -hmm. that Jack was walking down the street with. And they were like, what do you mean you're not interested? Why yeah, have you the found him? Where is saw he? Him alive. Absolutely, yeah. you should talk to him. He would be like, even if they did part company, maybe he said something. Maybe he told him where he was going. Maybe there was something. Yeah. Like, what the hell, man? Why would you not want to see this guy? And they are not interested in finding the guy. But once they've discovered that they were never parted, they actually look and what do you know, without any real effort on anybody's part, yeah. he's immediately identified as... Stephen Port. And on the 15th of October, 2015, 16 months after killing his first victim, Port is finally arrested for all four murders. The Metropolitan Police move the case, which sounds like <laughs> desperately in a panic, move the case to a specialist homicide unit. The trial is a year later. 
Port is found guilty of all four murders in addition to drugging and sexually assaulting an additional seven young men. 29 different charges of murder and sexual assault. He's ordered to spend the rest of his life behind bars with uh, their version of no possibility of parole, a life order, I believe it's called yes. in the UK. He, that's it for you. See ya. So, um... We get it. We check in with Sarah, Anthony's fiery mother, and she just says, "I believe this was homophobia. That if that if these had been young women lying in this churchyard, that everybody would have moved heaven and hell." I don't. I don't know. We should talk to the families of some working class women who have died mysteriously. You know, like I don't know if that's. I had an interest. I had my own take on. Like this is a weird. My sort of reaction to it in general was this is a weird case of it is still homophobia, mm-hmm. but it is but it's more like um like they were not willing to question Stephen's sexuality because mm. of an effort not to offend mm. like they were being. Like I'm not saying they should be harder on people, but it's it's like they were buying into they had developed their own um it's still bigotry, mm-hmm. but they had developed their own stereotype of a gay man. Like, oh, gay man goes out partying and overdoses on drugs and dies. Right. They were perfectly willing to accept that as gay people, as mm. as a gay man. Like one of my favorite lines in all of this, um, is one of the characters um, saying, and it's actually not in this part of the story, is like, and and something I say all the time is, stop telling me how to be gay. Mm -hmm. Like, it takes five people on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy to be one gay stereotype. You know, like, there is not a particular kind of gay person. Like, we conflate those things. Like, I think there's, in the the gay community, there's a tendency to conflate sexual compulsivity with Mm -hmm. being gay. Like, I think that's fine. If you want to have sex at a bathhouse or in a public restroom or in a park, like, that's your thing. Mm -hmm. Like, go for it. But it has nothing to do with being gay. Mm -hmm. I'm a gay person and I have absolutely no interest in any of those things um, at all. And nothing about them seems sexual to me or sexually. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the same case here. They have developed their own kind of bigotry around how they view gay people. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't seem suspicious that these young gay men are going out partying and dying of overdoses, and they don't want to question Stephen's story because they don't want to be seen as being homophobic, Mm -hmm. and it works against them. I also think they're lazy, inefficient, underfunded, and badly managed. I'm I'm not forgiving them. Let me ask you a question I've been dying to ask you. The funding thing came up so often. I don't know. You're kind of an Anglophile and very well-read and no current events. What was going on financially in the U.K. in 2015? That, that Because there's a mention of cutbacks at some other point. It's like, were these departments gutted by David Cameron's well, David austerity Cameron, plan? David Cameron went in and did all kinds of defunding for any mm-hmm. kind of social program. Like, there were riots in the mm-hmm. street after he was elected. He, like, took people's education funding away. It was, it was terrible. It's that yeah. belief that the government shouldn't pay for anything ever at yeah. any time, which is like, well— I'm sorry, what? What are you talking about? I just don't understand that philosophy except for, you know, selfish rich people don't want to share any of their money, which Mm -hmm. I get. I don't want to give any of mine away. So I understand that, but tough shit. Um, So I guess that would be part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it did seem like a Kafka-esque kind of story. It gets dramatized better in 
the 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 next week's show. But yeah. but the, the the one of the things that happened was the neighbor, Stephen Port's neighbor, right? As he began to see this being covered, mm-hmm. and they were they had ta- they had arrested Stephen. He'd seen them be arrested. He went to the Dagenham Barking Police. Because he knew that Stephen had put out this fake story about Gabriel going back to... Right. Like, he had evidence mm-hmm. to actually present. He went to the um, the police, and they were not interested in what he had to... He, right. He, he eventually found somebody who would listen to him, but he had to persist. Yeah. They were not interested in hearing from him. So right. it, was, it seems to have been maybe even worse than just... This incredible homophobia. The thing, the tragedy of this is three of these young men did not need to die. No, they would be alive if somebody had done something. If somebody at the start. had done something yeah. about Anth, um, they would have been, he would have been alive and they refused. Yeah. So let me, let me wrap up with what they, sh- they flash on the screen at the end in the title cards. In October 2015, the Metropolitan Police referred itself to the Independent Police Complaints Commission over, quote, potential vulnerabilities in its response to the four deaths. The IPCC is investigating 17 officers for possible misconduct. This information is now dated and will update it next week. The Met has declined to comment on the specific allegations in this film. As the investigation continues, the investigation was complete by the time of the movie we see next week, so we'll tell you what what happened. Tune in next week to find out what happened with that investigation. The Met had said, we have not waited to enhance our understanding of drug-facilitated sexual assault. So they're, it's, they move it away from sexuality and say that was the crime that we didn't see Date rape the way we needed the thing to we see. didn't see clearly enough. Officers now have a, quote, toolkit and a checklist for guidance on how best to respond to allegations. They are now, quote, trained about this type of crime with the help of LGBT organizations. Okay, that's a lot of But the other it. thing that was just the most inexcusable about all of this was that one of the things apparently, and I I will say that I have learned this entirely from watching um, British crime shows. Yes, but dramatized appa- crime shows. Dramatized yes. crime shows like the like Bay or many of the other ones right. where the, uh, it, it actually was I think a big part of the what was it a Broadchurch? Yes, they have when when there is a tragedy like this, they have an officer called a family liaison mm. who actually goes and almost advocates for the family. They interact with them. They participate with them. They are part of the investigation so they can reveal things about the family that they discover, but they are very much, they become a part of the family's lives. They are present. They are in the house. They are on call for them 24 hours a day. Like if anything, if you need anything, we are here for you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happened in this was that the family liaison was the person telling all of these people that there's nothing suspicious here. And, and he never went to see them, never visited them, never did. And he said he was trained. So if they're saying that they're training people with a new toolkit, they need to go back to the other toolkit because, yeah. as I say, I only know about these particular – this from – this depiction from mm-hmm. uh, crime drama. So I don't know if it's the truth. Maybe some of our um, British listeners can tell us. But but it seemed like the failure, the big one of the biggest failures of this was the complete absence of the family liaison officer from doing what are actually would seem to be the, yeah. the prescribed jobs. I mean, if that's actually all that family liaison officers do, mm-hmm. they sh- I can tell them where they can save some money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Eric Shaquin always delivering. I'm going to call it the final verdict right? here at True Crime TV Club. The final verdict from Eric Shaquin. So next week, uh, we're going to continue our discussion of this story with a discussion of the limited series The Barking Murders, which, as we said earlier, is also called Four Lives in Various Markets, including F-O-U-R. IMDb, F-O-U-R Lives. Uh, and we'll go a little bit deeper on this topic. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaquin. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.